And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's open God's Word. Have a seat. If, uh, if you need a Bible this morning, uh, you can totally raise your hand. We've got some people that will be bringing them down. They'd be happy to hand one off to you. Uh, we've always said this before. Uh, we love God's Word. We want you to have God's Word in your hand. And so if you don't have a Bible, feel free to, to keep it. Now, what we've been doing over the last few weeks is we've been going through the book of Isaiah. Now, let me, let me see if I can kind of lay out for you an idea of why this is so important that we're going through the book of Isaiah. The people of Israel at the time that Isaiah wrote, in many ways, here would be the great kind of reality of, I think, what they lost. They lost a sense of awe and wonder and just being blown away by the greatness and majesty and awesomeness of God. And then when they lost that, they also then forgot who they were. And in so many different ways then, what began to happen within them is they began to forsake their birthright, what it meant to be God's people and everything that was entailed in that. And they began to embrace other things that began to come into their life. And I would even say this, they probably just thought it's pragmatic, it's a good idea, it's reasonable to bring these things in. But I would say this, part of the problem with God's people from back then to to now and all throughout time is when we lose a sense of awe and wonder and majesty and otherness, holiness of who God is, we begin to go down this path that is is a path that that leads to what what Isaiah talked about, this downward spiral. Now, what we're going to do today that's so important for us to look at, and and I think this is the the climax of this section of Isaiah as he's getting ready to launch us off into the rest of the book, and we'll, we'll kind of study Isaiah looking at some different facets for the next several weeks together in different ways. And I think this is what's important to kind of grapple with and grasp this morning as we, as we work through this, is that at the end of the day, all of humanity deep within us, we're trying to create stability. Now, you might say, well, that's funny. I'm not trying to create stability. And let me, let me just challenge that a little bit. I think we're trying to create stability for happiness. I think we're trying to create stability for, for our, 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 our safety. We're trying to create stability for our comfort. We're trying to have stable jobs. We're trying to have stable families. We're trying to have stable marriages. Everything is about stability. We want something to only operate at one level. We don't want the bottom to drop out. And so therefore, every facet of life from the insurance that we buy to the, the jobs that we get to the houses that we buy and the schools we send our kids to, we want to find stability. And the moment that that stability in any way then falls out from underneath us, oh, do we rage and worry and get concerned and wonder what in the world are we going to do with life because we've lost this stability. But let me just say this to you. I do believe all of us in here, I don't care who we are, within our culture, within our time, we've all in our head thought that in order to have a, a safe, fulfilled, comfy life, We're going to go down to the beach at low tide and build sandcastles, only to find out that after we build our sandcastles, the waves come in and everything gets demolished because God never designed the world as it currently is to be permanent. He has something so much bigger in store for us. Now in that, what begins to happen though is, and I've heard it a lot this week, I was just kind of listening around, 
is that then then what motivates us? What gets us up in the morning? What fuels our dreams and our desires? Well, if what fuels our dreams and desires is stability in this world, let me just tell you, we are always going to be disappointed. If your stability is that your kids will live a safe, comfortable, perfect life and nothing will go wrong for the rest of their days on earth, you are going to be highly disappointed. If you think your form of schooling, your form of of how you raise your kids, if you think in any way that those things are going to provide for you the stability that you need, and that's what you're resting in, you will be disappointed. If you think somehow that Social Security is going to be there for you really at the end, you'll be disappointed. Everything about this life and the stability that we're trying to create, this is what Isaiah is going to talk to us about. God in His graciousness and His goodness allows these unstable realities to enter our life because at the very end, those that have not banked their hope and their trust in Christ alone are going to be sitting there in front of Him one day, highly disappointed, in terror, watching as the whole world careens around them in these moments in which we experience loss, these moments in which we experience difficulties, these moments where we learn the instability of this world, it is God's way of beckoning out to us to tell us there will come a time in which all the ways in which humanity has built its dreams and its goals and its desires around this temporal world is going to fall flat and the only thing that will remain is Jesus Christ and his glory and forever and ever and that's it now it's hard to hear so now you're probably sitting there going oh great this is going to be a depressing talk holy cow I don't think it's depressing for every once in a while for us to slow down and remind ourselves of the awe and the wonder, not just of God, but I would even say this, the awe and the wonder of what God intends for us one day. This is a huge aspect of Isaiah that he wants us to get. Now, I don't think it's anything different than what Jesus would talk about. Like Jesus, when he got to Matthew and he's given the Sermon on the Mount, let me see if I can get there real quickly. He talked about it in this way. Okay, so let me just kind of say how Jesus talked about this idea. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven or on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Look at this, but contrast. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, neither thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says this statement. For where your treasure is, there will be heart also. Now Isaiah, again, he's saying the exact same thing that Jesus Christ was saying. He's saying it from a different vantage point, is that Isaiah was putting its treasure in temporal realities and kingdoms and rulers and all these things around them and missed the fact that as God's people, they were designed for so much more. And this is what Jesus was arguing. You, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Your treasure is not on this earth where moth and rust destroy. Your treasure is hidden forever in Jesus Christ that he plans to bring with him when he returns and for us to enter into eternity. So therefore, the only stable thing in this life is to then begin to put our treasure in what matters most. And that which matters most is what Jesus will return with one day when we live with him forever. So Isaiah is kind of saying the same thing. Now, one of the things, though, that we're going to have to understand as we get ready to go through this passage is we're going to have to understand this idea of hope. Okay, that's going to be the first thing. We'll try to define hope out. 
And the second thing we're going to really have to understand as we work through this passage to understand what God is trying to tell us about this temporal nature of this world and what he has to store for us is we're going to have to also understand pride, okay? So there's two words. Let's just get those into our head. One is going to be hope and one is going to be pride. Now, what's hope? Well, there's different ways in which we look at it in in this context of hope. So let, let me explain to you how my kids view hope whenever I'm coming home from a trip. When I'm coming home from a trip, sometimes I don't think they want to see me. They just know that I'm bringing something with me to give them as a gift. And so they'll say things like this. I hope dad brings us something cool from wherever he's come from. It's not, oh, I hope dad makes it home because we cherish and love him and think he's the most wonderful thing ever. Their hope is found, though. Now listen to me. Hope is always found in something that we treasure. That's one form of hope. Now, they are hoping that dad gets home, don't get me wrong, because the person that's going to be bringing these wonderful goodies for them from around the world is going to be something that dad is going to be bringing, so they will say, man, I hope dad makes it home. But another thing that they'll hope for one time is my son, we were talking on the phone, and he goes, you know, are you going to be home before we make it, before we go to bed? Because I would, I would really love to see what you're going to bring us. And I said, all right, buddy, I go, I guess it'll depend whether or not there's like a headwind or a tailwind and what the pilot decides to do. He goes, well, then dad, I hope you have a great tailwind coming home. That's hope. But that's not the way the Bible describes hope. Hope is not like we oftentimes make it a wish. Hope is not something that, though maybe we should put it, is something that's uncertainty. In fact, what hope is, and this is why I have this definition for us, so that we can understand as we look at, at, at Isaiah 2 to help us grapple with and wrestle with what is certain, is that biblical hope is the confident expectation. Let me just stop there. It is the confident expectation. It is the thing that Isaiah saw in his vision, the reality of what he saw as he looked through all of time in which God allowed him to see is this is not a wish in which it might happen or could potentially happen. What he saw is literally what is and what is going to come. There's no doubts about it. There's no insecurities. There is a just a reality in which he's looking at. So when we talk about hope within the Bible, Hope is not something that has that is unconfident, but it is completely a confident expectation. But it's a confident expectation and a deep desire for something good in the future. So we hope for something when Bible when we talk about from the Bible standpoint, because we truly believe it is going to happen and because it's going to be good. Now let's look at this for just a second to help us understand how it is that Isaiah is going to do it. Here's what he says, starting off in Isaiah 2. If you've got your Bibles, you can look down. If not, go up on the screen. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Now what in the world's going on there? Well, what this idea of latter days is very important to the idea of hope. Now, what Isaiah is doing all throughout it, and this is important to understand, is that he's looking in one direction back to the garden and what God meant way back when and all of his hopes and dreams for humanity, and then looking through the wreckage of history and seeing what happens when man grabs things and tries to then create for himself this this security or this stability, looking all the way forward, though, into this moment in which he calls the latter days. Now, what are the latter days? Well, it's not a group of people called the Latter-day Saints. 
But instead, what he's doing for them here is this, he's defining for them the hope in a time, in a place, and in a person. In other words, now, when you come to this, he's saying there's going to be this place. When you look up down at that particular text, he said there's going to be a mountain, look at this, of the house of the Lord that will be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, we got to take ourselves back there for just a second to kind of understand what's going on. Is the, the, This idea of a mountain was where they would oftentimes build their, their different temples and places they would go worship God. And so the higher that your temple was, like if you look at like something like Genesis 11 and, and you understand like the Tower of Babel, is that they weren't trying to build something that was going to outer space. They just were trying to. They believed that the higher we could build our mountain and the greater, or the higher we can build our temple on a mountain, the closer that we'll be to God. And so so what you see in here is the fulfillment, I think, of what humanity has always wanted, which is to be near to God. And he's lifted up in such a way, and this is the way I would say it, he's lifted up in such a way that all the nations then, he talks about in this, when you look at the very end of it, are going to flow to it. It's meant to be anti-gravitational. It's meant to be crazy. It's meant to be this high place that things are going up. But there is something about this vortex that's calling people to himself in which people are going to gladly hurry and try to get there because there's something so cool that's going on that I have to be a part of. He's saying that's what's going on in the future. Well, then what is it? Well, he says in there that there's going to be people that are going to tell us what's going to be going on. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. Now, this is going to sound kind of uh, a little bit defeating, okay? So, but just go with me for just a second. People all the time tell me and they'll say things like, oh, I can't wait to go to this conference or I can't wait to go to this particular, you know, day in which we're going to look at something and study something. This will be the best conference ever put on ever, Period. And it won't just be anybody speaking at it. It won't be me, you know, thank goodness. It won't be some speaker, whoever you think is the greatest speaker of all time. The idea is the communicator at this particular moment is going to be God himself. And the thing that God is going to teach us, look what he says here, that he may teach us his ways and how to walk in his paths. Now again, imagine if all of a sudden any of you found out, hey, this morning uh, Jesus is going to be speaking at Cornerstone. Now some people would be like, yeah, whatever, and they wouldn't come. But imagine being here and suddenly as we arrive, Jesus is the one here to teach. His point is this is going to be the norm forever. There's going to be a constant beckoning of God as the idea to teach us his ways and how to walk and in teaching us his ways and how to walk. We're not going to have confusion how to live this life. We're not going to wonder what is stability and how to create stability because he's going to show it to us. He's going to maybe in a way a word that we would use. He's going to mentor. He's going to teach us about life and how to live it. And it won't be a distant kind of a teaching. It won't be a God's word coming down to us in a book. It will be God unadulterated with no veil and front of him with his people enjoying them and teaching them what life was meant to be now on some levels we're like and this is what i mean i hate to make it a conference right because you're like a conference but if you ever just stopped and wondered for a second what's eternity going to be like with god he's going to be teaching us and showing us people always say well i'll know everything when i get there won't i know you won't 
We'll be learning and growing and developing. We'll, we'll be understanding life in the way God intended it. We won't be obstructed by sinfulness and hate and discouragement, all those things on there. Suddenly, we'll be living life in the way that God intended fully. In other words, this is what Isaiah is saying, is that setting your hope on what God intends for us one day is so important because his point is, it is coming. Now, it's not just coming in any old way, and this is where it gets to be pretty incredible. Not only will we be with him, and not only will we learn him in his ways, but there's a third aspect of this that is so crucial. Uh, whoa. It's a good song. <laughs> there I am again. Stay with me. Stay with me. Stay with me. Holy cow, what happened? Do we know where we're at in this? Because I don't. I know, I'm trying to find it. There it is. Four. Okay, everybody with me? Holy cow, all right. So it's not only will be with him, but watch this. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. In the learning life together, suddenly, instead of using instruments that divided humanity, that destroyed humanity, that brought death and destruction to humanity, the teaching of Jesus now, for the first time ever, we will take those implements of war and we will pound them now into instruments that will be used for human flourishing. In other words now, this life that we have in store for us, that God has planned for us, isn't now just about learning his ways, but now experiencing them in the wonder of the world that he's created with him. And we're going to learn them together. I mean, my wife and I, as we were driving one, just this week, I was kind of asking her, I was like, what do you think it will be like to suddenly live in a world in which we don't fight anymore? And the first thing she jokingly says to me, she goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, you know, what's it going to be like? What is it going to be like when all of human intelligence and wisdom and ingenuity no longer gets used to, to somehow build up myself and destroy others, but instead gets used in such a creative way to cause us to be these people that God intended to flourish as we learn and grow from who God is and develop that. In other words, the reason that we should be excited one day for what God has in store for us is we are not going to sit on clouds and play harps. We are not going to go to this eternal, never-ending musical worship service where all we do is sing nonstop. We are going to worship God in an incredible way of learning life in this world and how he's created it for humanity to flourish with him at the very center of it, what it is that God had intended for us. He's saying that's the only sure thing. That's it. Isaiah wants them to grasp this and see this and believe this. That is our That is our awe. That is our wonder. 
The sad thing, and I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody on this, we have made church so stinking pragmatic. How to make my best life now. How to create the best marriage on the planet ever. How to, you know, just all these different things. And not that those things aren't important. And not that God doesn't want to see marriages that flourish and, and lives that are used for Him. But I think the wonder of the church is not how we somehow pragmatically invite God along with whatever life we're creating. I believe the wonder of the church is God Himself and the reality for which He created us to be His people. I think at the core of what is it the wrong of, of churches all over the United States is we have lost the awe and the wonder and the reality of not only who God is, but his intent for what it means to be his people. We're bored. We want God to just kind of come in and, and stir this little world that we lived in and make our life that's never intended to be permanent. Instead, it's intended to be temporal, just a little bit better when God is offering us so much more. That's hard for us in the United States. That's what I mean. In the United States, we kind of have a little bit of heaven, don't we? We kind of got a good. Man, everybody watching, everybody walk in this morning, it's like, oh, it's like so miserable. It's raining outside. And what are we going to do? You know, within a couple weeks, it's going to be like, oh, turn up the air conditioner in here. It is so hot. What are we going to do? Whereas people in other places, they're more wondering, how are we going to live? How are we going to survive? Will my kids actually make it past five? There's a beauty of what we have and all that God's given us in the United States, but sometimes what can begin to happen is we can begin to build our little heavens on earth. And as we build these little heavens on earth, we lose the awe and the wonder and the reality of this incredible God and what He has to store for, in store for us. Just listen to me. This is not our home forever. It's not. And that's what Isaiah, when he looked down through history, saw there is something coming that is so mind-blowing and so other. Bank your hope there. That is our hope. All right? Is everybody with me? With me? Okay. Now, off of that then, though, we have to understand, because I would say this, and this is where the song we're looking at kind of fits in, so I'll just run with that particular song that's just coming out is that within Isaiah, he gives us not just a place, but a person to hope in. By the time we get to Isaiah 9, this person is laid out as this one that eventually gets encapsulated in our celebration of Christmas, this child that's to come, who is now a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord hosts. Look at that last statement. Do you ever see that? Will do this. That is hope. He's saying to us and trying to help us to understand is that it's not just in a concept, it's not just in a place, but that literally what it is is in a person, and we know that person is Jesus Christ. And this is where that song fits in so well. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus. 
and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but on Billy, that's how you do it, right there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's a person. Isaiah wants us to know there is a king that is coming, a suffering servant that's coming. He's saying that's where you place your hope. Things will come and go. Tragedy will leave us with nothing. We'll enter the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. But this person, Jesus, is where our hope is. And everything outside of that, to use the, this particular hymn that was written by this guy named Edward Mote, when he was putting it down in there, all else is sinking sand. So there's the first thing, okay? This is where our hope is, but building on sinking sand, then the question we have to ask ourselves in, what is the sinking sand or what keeps us from truly being the people God had called us to be? Now watch this. If the first one is all about hope, if it's all about now where we place our hope, the big problem that humanity faces is pride. Or maybe to put it positively, let me put a little bit of a twist on that. If one end is hope, the other end is us understanding humility. Now in humility, everything that it has to do with, with understanding our pride is that we somehow have this audacity to think that we can put together a life of stability in and of ourselves. This is what he's looking at down through time because there's going to come a day when all the things that we've built up, that we think we've arrived, whether it's our retirement, whether somehow we've grown kids God's way, whether it's some other weird thing that we've done that we think that we've arrived, when we stand before this God one day, if it's not in any way found in him and in him alone, it is just going to be trash. Nothing. And this is what he sees with humanity. This is why, look at that statement, you have rejected your people. You've rejected your people, why? Well, this house of Jacob, because they're full of things from the east and fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with children of foreigners. That word full is very, very important there because in the very next verses, look at this, their land is filled with silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down as to the work of their own hands, to what their own fingers have made. In other words, he's beating out this drum over and over and over again, using this idea of full and filled. We are filled with everything and anything but God. And let me tell you something. We as the church can get there. He's talking about his people. Now, this is so cool, and I love how A.W. Tozer explains this. And I would just say this. If you're ever wanting somebody to read just to blow your mind and cause you to think, or not A.W. Tozer, C.S. Lewis. A.W. Tozer is great, too. But C.S. Lewis. Now, here's what he said about this. Now, watch this. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. 
He Himself is the fuel, it is the fuel of our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from Himself because there is no other. That's pretty good. What he's saying is, is if you're going to build your life, the way to build it on the sand is to think somehow that you can build it apart from God or to use C.S. Lewis's words, to build it and then somehow look at God and say, could you come along with me to be able to build my life the way I want it? Because God will not do that. He will not build our lives that way. And I would even say this for us as cornerstone. He will not build a church where we think we are building it. If we somehow think through our methodology, our way of looking at things, we're going to somehow build this great edifice to God. If it's not for him, the idea is, I'm just done. I'm out. At the core of it is a God that if he's not a part of it, then he will reject it. In fact, look what Isaiah does. So in order to deal with this, man is humbled, each one is brought low, and look at that word, do not forgive them. Wow. Now his big thing there is as God will totally pull himself, he will reject. Now I don't think that means he doesn't love us. I don't think that means he doesn't care about us. I don't think that means he doesn't want to beckon us to himself. But when God is no longer the sinner, he will totally pull himself back and he will let you go get what you want. And that word forgive means to be lifted up. He will not lift you up. He will allow you just to go low. He won't allow himself to be claimed as to be a part of what's going on if he's not the centerpiece of it. And sometimes I think we feel like it's like, who's God to somehow think he can be the centerpiece of it? No, seriously, if right now all of us were thrust in front of the throne room of God, we'd go, oh, oh, that makes sense. Because when you're the highest, the best, the greatest, the one who's at the center of the entire universe, you have the right to look at people and just you've created them and say, I've created a world in which I am the best. I'm the one that created it. And I am to be the centerpiece of it, not because I don't love you, but because if you try to find that contentment in that center outside of me, you will always run yourself into the ground because I've designed the world to operate and I've designed my people to operate in such a way that I am in you and with you and a part of you. And if you reject me, then I will let you go get your sin. And you see this all throughout the Bible in the New Testament. Go on, go get your sin. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in other people's lives. But the first part of this pride is, is we don't think that we need God to be the centerpiece of it. Here's the next part. In verses 10 through 19, not only not think that he, he needs to be the center part of it, but the reality now that he's going to kind of take us to is he's going to now help us to understand that this pride that's found within humanity is somehow now we then begin to begin to then, if God's not there, I begin to exalt myself in a certain way. If there's no God, then I can begin to exalt myself. So they, in verse 11 and 17, look at this. God says, no, I will be the one exalted in that day. Look at the end of 17. No, I will be the one exalted in that day. He's saying that is not the way that I've designed humanity. He's not being egocentric. He's not thinking somehow he's all that in a weird way. He is all that. 
And the reality for us to somehow think that number one, he doesn't need to be a part of us, but then number two, to somehow think, and we all do it in different ways of exalting ourselves. We even do it with religion like they did back in the Tower of Babel. This is what God saw as all of humanity beginning to create its own religious system, to get its own gods. They begin to, and I would even say this, create their own utopian world. And as they begin to create their own little utopian world, God looks down on it and says, that is not why I've designed you. How do we create a utopian world? Let me talk to you personally. In my little utopian world, I have to have a house. Now some of you are like, well, no, duh. But not just any house. See, the other day I was watching a show that had all of the most expensive homes ever. And I was convinced I really needed one of those houses. Because I need room for my children. You know what I mean? I need room for that. And not only do I need a house, like I told you before, I need a really big truck. I just do. If I could have a big truck and look down on all of you, life would be so much better. I need a fat bank account. I need a kicking body. You know what I'm saying? We begin to create a world. And then the moment that we don't get that world, we start to get frustrated and flustered and disappointed. We create it even around things that are important. The, the, the people that I love the most, and don't get me wrong, I love all of you, but I love my family. I love and adore my wife. I love and adore my children. And as I begin to love on them, and especially if I begin to love on them, and God is not at the centerpiece of it, they can become the very ones that I begin to cherish and do everything that I can to be able to make them happy and content and satisfied in this world. I begin to shape my life around that, and I begin to, to tell myself, life is good because mama's happy and the kiddos are happy, and I begin to create again this little sense of utopia. When mama and I fight, then we do whatever we can to not have that little utopia. But in a weird way, we can begin to push God out of it. This is what he's talking about. As we begin to push God out of it, after a while, our family begins to think we don't even need God anymore within it. And as we don't need God anymore in it, God is never afraid to say, fine, go get yours. And as the family begins to go get theirs and begin to go get what they want and they desire, this is why marriages begin to fall apart. This is why families begin to fall apart. All these different realities, when God is not at the absolute center of everything that we are, His promise is, I will remove my hand and you will experience death and destruction and disorder and chaos. I want you to experience that because, again, everything is pointing towards that day when, he, when we stand before God. And if we have built our life on anything other than the grandness and the greatness of Him and Him alone in the person of Jesus Christ, we will only find disappointment. If you're somebody sitting here today that does not Joe Jesus Christ. Let me just tell you this. There is a day that is coming. There will be a judge, Jesus Christ. We will all have to stand for him and give an answer for our lives. And if you stand before him without being in Jesus, fully accepted as one of his, you will stand in absolute horror because everything that you think you've built your life on will be utterly destroyed with nothing that will be left for you. And the only thing now you will be left with in 10 and 19 are these two words, Terror of the Lord. Wow. He's saying that's where it's all moving. It's all going that way. 
You'll even see this in the next section. In that day, mankind, look at this, will cast away their idols. All of us that have thought we've built this wonderful life and all the great things that we've built will we'll sit there with these idols standing before him and the, and the picture is, is us going, oh, snap, no. And just the tossing them away. This does nothing for me. We're not going to stand before God and go, check out the 401k. Bow. Check out this. Check out that. Look at this, which they made for themselves, and here's this word, to worship. What do you mean by worship? Well, the moment God's no longer the center, and the moment then that we begin to make ourselves the ones to be placed as, as somehow in control of life, we soon realize that we can't, and we begin to then accumulate for ourselves what the Bible calls idols. Now, I'm not talking about idols like maybe back in the old school under the old cults and, and worship places, but we begin to accumulate, and this is what I would say, things that can somehow, we think, keep our life under control. There has to be something that keeps us under control, that allows us to have, and again, stability. And when we stand before God, it says, that's not going to create stability. And we just throw them away. He even says in there, look at this, to the moles and to the bats, the idea is they just go to the ground. They enter caverns and rocks and the clefts and the cliffs from before. And look at that word, the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises. And look at that word, to terrify the earth. Wow. Now, on some level, we're like, who is this God? Is he? He's a God, and let me just say this, not to be toyed with. He's a God not to be played with. He's a God that sits in unapproachable light. He's a God whose magnificence stretches across the universe. He's a God in whom no place within this universe he doesn't exist. He's a God that understands the thoughts and the hearts and the motives of man. He's a God that is above all things, that sits enthroned in majesty. That's this God. And at the very end, this is what he's trying to say. All of these things that we tend to find stability in and we tend to find our, our satisfaction in that we think somehow that we're going to find our dreams and goals and desires one day, if that's what we bank on, we stand before him one day and we stand apart from Jesus Christ in us alone with our stuff, he's just going to say, you're going to run into this terrifying God. But for those that know him and love him, that terrifying God will not be an evil despot. We also learn from Isaiah, he'll be a father. Our daddy, Paul calls him. So what's his outcome of this? And I'm going to get there in just a second, but watch this. If that's really true, then stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Stop going this way. Stop heading down this path. 
This is what Isaiah is crying out to them for. And this is what on behalf of God, I would say I'm crying out for us, for me, because I struggle just as much as anybody in this room. We have this predisposition and tendency to go this path that is a way that seems right in our mind, but in the end it leads to, the Bible talks about, destruction. Isaiah is saying, stop. So, so what? What's the big deal? Let me just talk for just a second to land this thing at the very end. I think deep within all of humanity is this desire and this longing, this future reality of having the stability that we've always wanted. A stability personally, a stability for others. It's what commercials have promised us. It's what politicians have promised us. I think everything within humanity that we've always wanted is going to finally now arrive one day for us in this longing that every human has ever had. Every human that stands in front of us, think about what all the politicians are offering us right now. They're going to offer us some type of utopia. I was, I was, I was at a restaurant the other day and a guy had a, um, some, uh, I'm burn, um, the Bernie Sanders sticker. What's his? Burning for Bernie or something? I don't know. That sounds not right, but, um, he had that thing, and I go, oh, you're going you're gonna to vote for Bernie Sanders. And he goes, oh, I love Bernie. And I go, oh, really? Like, why do you love Bernie? Because what he's, what he's promising we will have. I go, oh, well, like, what are we going to have? He goes, well, just think about it. He goes, we'll finally have stability in this world where people won't be worried about jobs and people won't be worried about health care and people won't be worried about crime and people won't be, and I'm sitting there going, Wow. I go, you really think this guy is going to give us all that? He goes, well, no, it's more the idea of it. And I said, what if the idea you're looking for is not found in Bernie? What if the idea you're looking for is actually still found in a person, Jesus? He goes, oh, my gosh, come on. He goes, Jesus is not going to give me a job. And I said, well, I'm not saying Jesus will or won't give you a job, but your job at the end of the day is something that's going to burn and go away. But one day, Jesus is promising something so much better than your job. He's promising so much better than health care. He's promising so much better than, than insurance. He's promising so much greater than that. Everything that you hear these politicians offer over the next few months, they cannot deliver on because everything is a promise that we're going to have one day only in Jesus Christ. That's it. Now let me pick on the other side of the aisle real quick. If any of you think that Trump is going to make America great again, <laughs> I'm not saying what he's doing is bad. I like a lot of the things he's doing. But Trump is not going to make America great again. Jesus is the answer. Do I want abortion to end? Of course. Do I want to see people bend the knee to Jesus? Of course. But I don't need Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders to get there. Jesus is not dependent on who the president or senate or representatives of our country is. Jesus is king enthroned forever, and he is promising something so much greater than our politicians can offer. Now, you know, vote. Don't not vote. But oh, don't settle thinking that they're going to be our salvation. They are not. Only Jesus is. And in a world now that's watching all these things fall apart, you should be able to now come alongside of them and have comfort with them and care for them. 
There's people all around our nation right now and all around the world that are watching the world that they had hoped it would be, the utopia that we thought it might be, the hopes and dreams and our desires careening and falling apart. And they're sitting there at the lowest of moments looking for answers. And I would say this, in the United States and even in the state of California, in Southern California, The reason you don't have to run to Tennessee or Texas or Idaho or Georgia or any other place thinking somehow that that is the place you're going to find safety and comfort and security, even in the midst of the chaos that is California, Jesus is here. He's here in his church. There's a whole community of people in Simi Valley and the West Valley and Moore Park and T.O. that are watching, that have tried to build their hopes and their dreams and their desires on all these different things that are watching them careen. They are dying to hear a message of the greatness and the goodness of Jesus. But if we run away from her or begin to cloister into our little world, forgetting that those people are not the enemy, they're the opportunity to share with them the goodness and the greatness of Jesus, then we might as well close shop and move to, I don't know, Wyoming. But who would go to Wyoming? I think that's why generations are walking away from the church. They're watching the church get scared. They're watching the church lose its sense of awe and wonder at the greatness of Jesus. And therefore, we just get caught up in programs. Do my program. Do this program. Go down this particular thing. They're wondering, where is the greatness and the awe and the wonder of Jesus? Why are you running away from the Philistines when our God is great? I don't care what Goliath you're facing. Our God is greater than all things. And if you want the next generation to desire and crave for the goodness and greatness of Jesus, it's time to restore our awe and our wonder in that God. It's time for the church to quit being afraid. Oh, I just look around and it's just like, oh, what are we going to do? Our God set all things in motion and even when humanity fell he was creating a rescue plan whereby which he would call people to himself in the old testament in the new testament our god has been orchestrating things even when jesus came lived a perfect life he died he buried he rose again went back to the father gave us the holy spirit the church is triumphantly sending the message of jesus all over the world and one day jesus christ is coming back to establish this kingdom that i'm talking about where we will live in righteousness and goodness and peace and everything that he promised. Let me say this. You cannot, I cannot, Bernie Sanders can't, Donald Trump can't. Nobody can stop the fact that our God is in control of all things and he will return one day calling his people to himself and all those that don't know him will shake in horror and terror in their rejection of God as he then rejects them for eternity. But this is where all of history is going. This is our great God. So we got to quit, quit being so defeatist. Jesus reigns. He's king. And all God's people said, thank you. Okay, last thing. Last thing. What does that mean then? Oh, house of Jacob, God's people, come let us walk 
in the light of the Lord. What are we supposed to do? Well, let us walk means live real life. We've got to live real life. Um, when I came to know Jesus in my uh, 20s and even into my 30s, everybody was looking to do big things for Jesus. I was too. I wanted to do big things. Big, 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 big things, right? I wanted to do the incredible things. Have you ever noticed that most of the things done in the Bible, though, are never rarely big except for the stuff Jesus does? There was a widow that gave a mite. There was people that gave water to those who were thirsty. His point is, is in your everyday life, live as if you honestly believe that Jesus Christ one day is going to establish his kingdom. Start walking that way. President Obama used to always talk about this idea of hope. See, I'm picking on everybody equally. But he always used to talk about this idea of hope. President Obama, if you didn't happen to notice over those eight years in which he was president, did not deliver much on hope. But neither is Donald Trump. He always said this statement, don't be on the wrong side of history. Remember him saying that? I don't know if you remember that, but he always used to have this statement, you're on the wrong side of history. I always wanted to be able to have some time with him just to say, what if you're on the wrong side of history? What if all of history is moving towards this glorious day when finally Jesus Christ will be king and the greatest thing you can do now is not provide health care, is to not provide all the things that we've said but is to bend your knee before this God and acknowledge your need and desperation for Jesus Christ. In other words, we need to make our lives just about living for him. And this is the word I would use, faithful. Just be faithful. And then these whole ideas, walk in the light, do what God's called us to do. There's a story told where I'm from, of a man and a woman who in there getting caught up in, the, in this kind of pursuit of, of being ones that were trying to get everything across the prairie and they were going to establish and they were going to homestead. And as they're pushing this way and they're traveling across the United States and they left Kansas City and in leaving Kansas City, they're trying to make it all the way to Wyoming. Now, let me just tell you something. To make it to Wyoming at that particular time must have been awful because you had to travel through Nebraska, okay? So it's awful. In the midst of traveling through Nebraska, though, but they begin to think to themselves, let's just be satisfied in Nebraska. Now, let me just tell you, if you've never been to Nebraska, nobody can say that honestly. Let's be satisfied in Nebraska. Now, if you're from Nebraska, I'll pray for you. As they begin to travel through, finally they just said, let's just be happy here. Now, the whole point for Wyoming people is they were almost to heaven And I would say this about us. We are traveling through this world, but this is not our home. Not only be faithful, but endure. Don't quit. Don't quit. I'm going to bring the band up and we're going to sing this one last song that I flipped through all of the different things on because I love this song. But I want us to think, sing these words, and here's the thing. I know it's rainy outside, and I know we're in the middle of, of gray May. Okay, I get that. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here today, could we today sing like we honestly believe that Jesus Christ is coming back? And so I'm gonna have everybody stand up. I, 
I will come up here. If I don't think it's like loud enough and good enough, I will make us start over, even if we have to keep singing and the next service comes in. We will keep going until we get this thing right, okay? So all God's people, all of you that long for the return of Jesus, say amen. amen. All right, let's sing.